we continue this morning with the second part, second half of Jesus' Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6. Last week we saw that the electing God draws a people who having heard from the Father and learned from the Father and having been taught by God, the text says, come to, believe in, see, are drawn to, and embrace the Son as the one sent by the Father. That is what it means, Jesus taught us, to do the work of God, the required work. That is what it means to believe on the Son. These people, Jesus said, coming to him shall never hunger or thirst. These people, and only these people, partake of the bread of life. And as we mentioned last week, the language of eating flesh and drinking blood is not used in the first half of the discourse. But we shall see it today, however, in our text that we just read. But it's important to recall that in speaking of faith the way he did in last week's text, Jesus has already given us the framework, the tools, to understand what he means in this text. Right? It's one seamless discourse. And so with that, we'll make two points. First, eating flesh and drinking blood. And then desertion. So first, eating flesh and drinking blood. Last week, also, we saw that the, the crowd asked for a sign, and they said, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. They're very proud of that. Jesus begins by pointing out that even though they ate manna, they all died. The whole wilderness generation perished. Right? Mere eating is not the issue. Eating as an act of faith is the issue. But in Jesus, we Christian pilgrims have bread from heaven, which he says, if anyone eats, they shall not die. Later, in in today's text, later, down in verse 55, Jesus calls his flesh real food. And, And his blood, real drink. Right? Real there means belonging to the messianic age. In other words, it's the implication is the manna is not yet real food. It, it's a type of real food. It's a shadow. It points forward. But my food is eschatological food, food from heaven, substantial, life-giving food, the final food, food from the future. Right? Food which the manna was a type of. And whoever eats this food, Jesus says, this bread, and notice he calls it the living bread. Right? The bread that Jesus is, is the living bread, he says. Meaning, the spirit-empowered, infused bread. The bread from heaven. Whoever eats that bread, he says, will live forever. And now, for the first time in the text, we have this language of eating. But we already know. What it means. It means everything we saw last week. 
It means richly appropriating Jesus by faith. And actually, this is more common than we might think. We use eating in this way as a metaphor quite a bit. right? We might speak of uh, devouring books or eating our words or swallowing an idea or chewing over a matter. It's actually not that unusual, a linguistic move. So we know that this faith slash eating is the result of being given by the Father to the Son. This is a great delight. I know it's a scandal to many and was a scandal to many in Jesus' day. But John Calvin says, we will not understand our salvation as being rooted in the free mercy of God until we trace it to God's sovereign election. There will be something wrong, something mixed, something earthy about your notion even of grace until your salvation is traced to this. And as confirmation of this, notice this in the text, not one person who eats this bread in this way, perishes. Not one. No one. Jesus says, whoever eats will live forever. Right? That can't be said of the mere eating of the sacrament. Whoever eats, in the sense that Jesus means eat here, never dies. He says the same thing in verse 54. Whoever eats has eternal life. Again, To anticipate a major conclusion here, eating is not only faith, eating is living, persevering faith. And and the bread in view, Jesus tells us what it is. He says, it's my flesh, but it's not just his flesh per se. It's not flesh qua flesh, right? It's his flesh which he gives for the life of the world. So it's clear that bread equals flesh equals a kind of shorthand for his sacrifice on the cross. So what is eating? Eating is appropriating Jesus' sacrifice on the cross by faith. That's what it means to eat. Of course, this is not how his audience understood him. And you can sympathize with the audience in one sense, right? They, they don't have the benefit of you know, going back over leisurely like we do and looking carefully at the first half of the dialogue and, and watching all the shifts and changes. But even if they did, Jesus is still making claims in a shocking manner. There's, there's a certain intention, I think, here. Claiming to be the bread of life and to give your flesh for the world to eat are not things likely to be understood by a first century Jewish audience. And so what happens is what you would expect to happen. In verse 52, they argue. Literally, the text says they fought among themselves. They said, how can this man, this guy right here, how can he give us his flesh to eat? I mean, even knowing that the language is figurative, which it is, is still provocative and offensive to first century Jewish ears, right? It's this sort of language, right, which got the early church accused of cannibalism, right? People in the empire thought the church 
was cannibalistic because of this sort of language. And so they're, they're greatly disturbed and they're arguing about this. But remember, it's, it's a, in their ears, it sounds horrific. And so Jesus, being the teacher that he is, decides he's going to amplify the offense. He's going to magnify the stumbling block. We see this a lot in his teaching ministry. He doesn't take them aside and say, look, 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 of course I don't believe in literally chewing my fingers. He doesn't do that. He says this. Very truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and, let me add this, drink his blood, you have no life in you. Again, that should clear things up, right? That should put everybody at ease. You're a first century Jew, right? The law forbids cannibalism. You know what else the law forbids? The Torah forbids drinking blood. It forbids it. You know what else the Torah forbids? It forbids eating flesh. It forbids even eating flesh if the blood's still in it. But Jesus decides, you know what? I think I'll use these images, which he knows will be abhorrent to them. But if, notice again, he says it. If you do eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have eternal life and you shall be raised up on the last day. Right? Not half the people who eat his flesh and blood, not most, not some, all. This is just a stark way of repeating what he said last week. It's basically parallel to verse 40. Whoever looks to or discerns the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. As Augustine, in his commentary on John, would later put it, the words here simply mean, believe and thou hast eaten. Believe and thou hast eaten. But the crowds can't grasp this. The, The sacraments are subordinate to the gospel. They're seals. They're not the primary way we eat and drink Christ. The primary way we eat and drink Christ is this way. The sacraments testify to this reality. So this eating and drinking, Jesus says, gives you eternal life right now. And it assures that you'll be raised on the last day. As I mentioned last week, this end last day, the resurrection, the future resurrection, the age of eternity, comes into view right away because who are you communing with? The risen Christ, the ascended Christ, who is in heaven, who lives in the age to come. So to eat this way and to partake of this one immediately brings in the fact that you are already anticipating and participating in the resurrection. So we have communion with this raised one and in eating and drinking this way, Jesus goes on to say, enables you to remain or to abide in Christ. Right. Verse 56. We remain or abide in him this way. So he's talking about something that spans the whole Christian existence. And we're reminded again in verse 59 that all of this was taught in a synagogue at Capernaum. So that's the eating flesh and drinking blood. The second point is desertion. Desertion. So what happens? In verse 60, many of the disciples, clearly these are disciples in name only. Right? They say, this is a hard teaching. 
Who can accept it? They find it harsh and offensive. They don't mean it's intellectually difficult. That's really not the problem here. They mean it's offensive. And they grumble. And Jesus, and you can surely guess this by now, what he's going to do. He's going to amplify the offense again. He says, does this offend you? You know what Jesus never says? We talked about this in my Sunday school class last, night, last week at length. But he never says, here, sit down. Let me get a whiteboard. And I can explain this to you on a basic fourth grade level. It's really not that hard. right? I can, I can lay it out. He never does that. He says this. Oh, you're confused and offended and, and you stumble over this? What are you going to do when I tell you this? Right, so he says, does this offend you? The actual sense of the Greek here is, this is more than you can stomach, really? Then he says, what if you see the Son of Man? Now look, there's a human person. Right? There's a male person, you know, five foot ten, a carpenter, standing in front of them. And he says, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Like, what if you see the bread from heaven return to heaven? What if you see me lifted up on a cross and then lifted up into heavenly glory? Jesus thinks this is more scandalous. In other words, he's saying, you've completely failed to grasp who I am. It's interesting that he does this here. He moves to the ascension, which shows again that the eating and drinking he's talking about is spirit-wrought faith. The ascended Christ sends the Spirit, and he sends the Spirit, and the Spirit creates faith in your heart, and that unites you to Jesus. That's why when we come to the supper, we do the sursum corda, lift up your hearts. There's no eating, and there's no drinking without the Son of Man, who was given on the cross, being lifted up into heavenly glory and sending the Spirit. So he's really trying to draw them deeper into the mystery here. The spirit gives life, he says. The flesh counts for nothing. Now, this cannot mean that Jesus' flesh counts for nothing. Sometimes people get to this verse in this discourse and say, oh, the sacraments don't matter, or eating Jesus' flesh and blood doesn't matter. That would be preposterous. Jesus' flesh does not count for nothing. After all, his flesh is the bread which he gives for the life of the world. He's already told us that. His obedience in the flesh is how we're redeemed. But the point to see is this, that even his flesh is flesh anointed and endowed and filled beyond measure with the Spirit. He offers his flesh for the life of the world through the eternal Spirit. There's nothing magical even about Jesus' flesh as purely flesh. Just as there's nothing magical for us about eating as purely eating. So in this statement, when Jesus says the spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing, he is simply confirming the teaching of the whole discourse. It's an attempt by Jesus to say, think spiritually. In other words, think in terms of the power of the spirit sent from the ascended one. Don't think carnally or literally lift up your hearts to the ascension when you want to talk or understand what I mean by eating and drinking. So this act of faith, sometimes we have a very thin notion of faith, right? Kind of a notional notion, meaning faith is just 
and a set of ideas about Jesus, I, maybe a minimal set, I check the box off, I have faith. But faith in Jesus' conception is thick and deep and rich, and it's, not, and it, and it's a living, pulsating thing, and, it, and it's produced in you by the, by the supernatural personal agency of the sovereign spirit of God. It creates, he creates faith in your heart, and that faith unites you even though you're sitting here, to the risen and ascended Christ. Faith alone is the only way to be united to Jesus Christ. And then, that action enables us to commune, to come to, to eat, to drink, to feed upon, to remain in Jesus Christ. Jesus is talking about the very heart of the mystery of the Christian life here. That's the force of the Spirit gives life. There's no feeding on Jesus without regeneration, without this action of the Spirit to produce informed faith. So he continues here, he says, the words I have spoken to you, they're full of the Spirit and life. So this is sort of a slightly different angle on this. Notice that faith in Jesus, or feeding on Jesus, means feeding on his life-giving words. After all, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth through the breath of God. So again, understanding, appropriating, meditating on Jesus' speech, his words, that's a crucial part of this faith, this living dynamic faith which eats his flesh and drinks his blood. There's no eating apart from Jesus' words being received and believed. So, even with all of this additional explanation from Jesus, there are some, the text says, who don't believe, and of course Jesus knows this, and knew it from the beginning, and then in verse, this is why the text tells us, actually tells us, this is why he brought the topic of election up. And we get one more shot on this from Jesus in verse 65. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Like we saw this last week, right? He's piling up scandal on top of scandal. And he says, the electi and drink, nobody else does. Now, it's not that he intended to, but he certainly hasn't calmed any fears here. And and the text tells us from this moment, from this very time, many, not just a few, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This was a bridge too far for many people. And so Jesus, now Jesus' teaching here is literally emptying the classroom out. He turns to the people left in the class, the 12, and he says, "You you do not want to leave too, do you? This is not like a moody challenge. I don't think so. Jesus expects a no here. He expects a no. No, we don't want to leave. But he needs them to confirm it. He wants them to confirm it. And Peter does just that. It's a beautiful, famous passage. Lord, to whom shall we go? It's either Christ or nothing, beloved. It's either Christ or nihilism. Peter's not an intellectual. 
He hasn't figured all this out. It's a marvelous response. Lord, what are the options? I see no good options out there. It's magnificent. I may not, Lord. I'm a fisherman. I may not follow this discourse. And I don't know why you're using all this strange and offensive imagery. I'm a Jew. Could we stay away from the cannibalism imagery, please? But I know that what you say is true. I know that you have the words that are full of the spirit of life. That you have the words that give eternal life. So no, Lord, we're not deserting you like the others. It's beautiful. I want to make three points by way of application. I'll call them the Lord's Supper, the teacher, and intimacy. So the first thing I want to talk about is the supper. Mentioned this a little last week. John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. At least directly. It's not directly about it. Um, The chapter is about something wider. Something broader. And something more basic than the supper. Right? It's about faith. A living informed faith. The faith of those who've heard from the Father. Who feed on or eat or drink of the Lord. In other words, John 6 is about something that marks the whole Christian life. It's about eating, drinking, abiding, and remaining, we see in this text, in Christ. So it's basic. It's a text about what it means to live as a Christian. But while the passage is not about the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is about John 6. So the way to understand this is... This aphorism, which I think I gave last week. Right? John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is about John 6. Because what's the supper? Well, it's a focused time of eating and drinking, of being nourished and renewed, where those drawn and enabled by the Father come by faith to see and to commune with the one sent by the Father. Right? The one who has given his flesh for the life of the world. So the sacrament seals, it's like a distilled, focused laboratory test case for the Christian life in general. John 6 is about the Christian life in general. The sacraments are bringing John 6 into focus in your world. I think that's important. This is all beautifully summarized, by the way, in the Anglican uh, Book of Common Prayer, which when handing the bread to the people has the following words. Take and eat. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. That's the whole teaching of John 6 distilled into two sentences. Second, Second thing I want to talk about here is Jesus as teacher. Again, we discussed this last week, I think in my class. But the method that Jesus uses deserves some comment, I think. He, he sees, when he sees this unbelief and this hardness of heart, you'll notice he simply doesn't bend to it. He never says something like, perhaps I'm not making myself clear, let me try again. He could have said some clarifying things along the lines of what I've tried to say over the last two weeks. Hey, 
Eating flesh and drinking blood is a metaphor, people. I'm an Orthodox Jew, too. Of course, I'm not talking about cannibalism. Now, I think read carefully, he has, in fact, said something like that. But he refuses to connect the dots for those in opposition. Instead, mysteriously, he, he just, not only does he just let the offense stand, he makes the offense worse. I mean, if you did this as a Sunday school teacher, you'd get fired, right? And, and so there's a sense of where you're always finding yourself asking when you read the Gospels, why is, why is he doing that? And I think their hardness and their unbelief is one reason, right? The conversation between God and Israel is in its last heated, murderous stages, even when Jesus is conceived in the womb of Mary. There's a long, long history between God and the prophets that's in Jesus' mind here, right? He doesn't think, oh, this is a a fresh slate of people with fresh faces and bushy-eyed enthusiasm, so I'm just going to teach them as if they've never been taught before. No, these are the people that have killed the prophets for thousands of years and have never listened to my father. Jesus doesn't actually think they deserve a long, extended hearing. And so he's coming in that sense, and that explains, I think, a lot of what is perceived by his, uh, you might call it his rough handling of his students. But there's something even deeper than this involved in Jesus' teaching method. He expects to be believed because of who he is. He doesn't think, hey, let me make a series of arguments, and if you guys find them reasonable, follow me. He's God in human flesh. He says it from the outset, and his father has rendered testimony to him. He said that way back in John 4 and 5. He expects people to submit to his word, not because he's made it palatable or even spelled it out. He expects them, because of who he is, even through our confusion, to follow him. From the beginning... He sees them on trial, not him. They see him on trial. He's in the dock. He doesn't see it that way. He thinks his word should be received and believed because it's his word. In other words, there's no authority higher than him. This is one of the things about Jesus in the Gospels, right, that is striking. He never cites authorities. He never footnotes what he's saying, right? His word is self-authenticated. He alone can say this. You should believe me because I'm me. And this is why Peter's answer is so marvelous. It teaches us, and this is the point I want to make here. It teaches us to trust Jesus, to trust him as our divine teacher, even in the face of really hard and offensive and strange teaching. Because The Bible is full of strange and hard and offensive teaching. There's no sense in pretending that it's not. Right? And so, take, for instance, the doctrine of everlasting punishment. It's strange, certainly, to modern ears, and it's hard, and it's offensive. But I can tell you this. The thing that brings me comfort about it is that it's the wrath of the Lamb. That as long as it's this Jesus who's administering the wrath, I'm, I'm good with it. I'm sure he'll do the right thing. Right? But, you know, it's not like I have some independent uh, 
airtight argument that shows the logic of hell. I have the fact that Jesus talks about it, and Jesus is Jesus. So I believe it. Right? We, if we know that he's the one who has the words of eternal life, that's enough for us. Right? To keep us from deserting. And this perseverance that Peter shows, this not turning back. Notice how Jesus sifts the crowd. It's almost as if he thinks, it's almost as if you could talk to him a minute before he gave the teaching. He would say to you something like this. There's not going to be a lot of people left when I'm finished. Right? Sometimes I feel like that. But, uh, but you know, and he's going to go out there and, and he, he knows what's going to happen. And he's, but the point is he's trying, he's looking for the, the Petrine, the, the Peter-like response from you. Right? Because it's a perseverance test. This not turning back is how the reality of one's faith is shown. Not turning back in the midst of life's darkness and mystery and confusion and absurdities and perplexities. That's a demonstration that you've heard from the Father and you've been given to the Son. And as long as you're clinging to that Son who has the words of eternal life in the midst of your own confusion and questions, you can be sure of your election. Because election has nothing to do with your faith itself as your faith being robust or strong or vigorous. Election is doing, the proof of your election is when you do just what Peter does. You say, I'm not sure I understood much of anything at all there. But what are my options, Lord? You have the words of eternal life, so I'm going to cling to you. It's a beautiful thing, right? We trust and believe him because of who he is, because of his person. Not because we have some sort of expert grasp of what he teaches. Of course, we'd like to improve our grasp, sure. We'd like to learn. But our faith does not rest there. So finally, the third point I want to make here is intimacy. See, I think part of the insistence of our Lord on this flesh and blood eating and drinking language is because he doesn't want us to have a bear or a naked, or a minimalistic notion of faith, right? He, he wants to stress how close, how intimate, how uh, marital, how visceral, how tangible our union with him is to be. Faith is eating, gnawing on my flesh, drinking my very blood. He intends to shock because he doesn't want you to have a naked intellectual conception of faith. He could have said, Just believe in me. In fact, he actually did early in the discourse. And at times, he'll do that. That's New Testament shorthand for the whole John 6. Right? Here's John 6 in three words. Believe in Jesus. But he's here. He wants us to get a glimpse of the nature, of the substance, of the depth, of the bond that we're to have with him. Faith is the form of the bond, he says, and faith is hearing from my Father and being taught and seeing the Son and coming and eating and drinking and feeding and abiding and remaining. The union that faith, supernatural, spirit-wrought faith, is to give you with Christ, he says, is so deep, so profound, so concrete, to those outside it sounds like cannibalism. These people sound like they're cannibalizing the body of Jesus Christ literally when they talk about their bond of union with him. 
And to first century disciples, it sounded like that. And so it's a text about cultivating a deep and profound union and nearness with Jesus, intimacy. Notice that the language of eating and drinking means that there's a sense in which you have to ingest and assimilate his life into yours, right? When you eat food and drink it, it becomes part of your your life. It gets mixed with yours. And that's how Jesus transfigures your life. You have to take him in and consume him. And we do that primarily by his words and by the holy sacraments. One last thing. We must not forget, as much as we might like to, that this happens only when and only because And this is how Jesus ends the discourse. The Father draws us. Otherwise, you know what would happen? We would all desert like the crowd. We would all desert like the crowd. If, If the Father had not chosen you, you would not stand. And it's not just that God gave you faith once. It's that God is sustaining your faith in this very instant. Otherwise, it would just unravel and dissipate. So, the greater offense that Jesus has spoken of has occurred. He's ascended to where he was before. He's poured out the Spirit, and the Spirit produces faith and unites you to the risen Christ. So, to put this in words that the the Peter of our text would later write, make your calling and your election sure by trusting and persevering in the face of perplexity. By feeding on him, feasting on his words in a perpetual holy communion. For this one is our divine teacher, our sustenance, our heavenly bread, our life-giving Lord. Amen.